Hi, I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. About a year ago, the New York Times published a story about Harvey Weinstein and allegations of sexual harassment. The story reignited the Me Too movement. In a special series we're calling Offstage, we're featuring a conversation about Me Too. Here's the first episode in our Offstage series on women. It's the Aspen Ideas to Go Offstage series. I'm Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today. Today, the rise of women as leaders in the United States. More women are running for office, speaking up about sexual harassment, and taking charge in business. Still, barriers remain. 2018 may be the year of the woman, but how do women continue moving forward? The Aspen Ideas to Go Offstage series delves more deeply into issues that affect all of us. These conversations feature presenters at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Rebecca Traster has written about women from a feminist perspective for The New Republic, Elle, Salon, and others. She's a writer at large for New York Magazine and has written books including Big Girls Don't Cry. In our conversation, we talk about Me Too and first-time women candidates winning races. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. You have a new book coming out in October called Good and Mad. Mm -hmm. Are women good and mad? Yeah, they're furious. What are they mad about? They're absolutely livid. Oh, you name it. They're mad about, they're mad that Donald Trump is the president. They're mad about sexual harassment in ways that they've only just begun to talk about. Women have been mad prior to this moment. I want to, I want to be really clear about that. I mean, it's women who have been the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is an angry movement about the killing of black youth by police. Um, women have been angry on the left. Um, women have been angry within the, on the right, on the Tea Party. But post-2016 election, there is a kind of anger that has taken a mass form. And the first real iteration we saw of it was the Women's March that happened the day after the inauguration in 2017. You know, the Women's March was remarkable, huge, mm-hmm. unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And it's been followed by the emergence of the, of the Me Too movement. What sparked the Me Too movement? Well, the story of the Me Too movement goes back before this moment. This has been something, um, and you know, and depending the frame you take on it, you can take it back to the 1970s, which is when a lot of the sexual harassment law was made. It was made in the wake of civil rights legislation when women in the workforce, often women of color, understanding the kind of discrimination protections that had been put in place as part of the Civil Rights Act, um, began to apply those ideas to the ways they were being treated within their offices, which was so normal at that point to be grabbed, to be harassed, to be flirted with and diminished. Lots of women at the time say, we just didn't have words for it. And then there were a couple of cases, one filed by Carmita Wood, who worked at Cornell, one by Michelle Vinson, who is a bank teller, and some female lawyers, including Eleanor Holmes Norton, including um, Catherine McKinnon, took their cases, and they eventually went up through the Supreme Court until in 1986, they were ruled, sexual harassment was ruled a form of workplace discrimination, barred by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So that's the 70s and 80s. Then the next big moment is the testimony of Anita Hill in 1991. She testified that then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her. That was the moment that the term sexual harassment really came into the public lexicon as and it was made sort of more 
publicly um, and popularly clear that sexual harassment was not just a set of individual quirky behaviors, but kind of economic and professional harm done to women as a class. Of course, Clarence Thomas was confirmed anyway, and Anita Hill was treated very badly. Relevant to this moment, one of the things that happened in the wake of that testimony was that a rush of women into politics, women who had seen Anita Hill's testimony, seen the all-male, all-white Senate Judiciary Committee that had treated her very badly, were so angered by the fact that this was the representation, that this was what the Senate looked like, these old white guys who had who responded horribly to this basic story that this woman, an African-American woman, was telling about the way that she'd been treated by a boss in the workplace. And that story was very familiar to lots of women. It prompted the the runs of many women, records record numbers of women, four were elected to the Senate in 1992, including Carol Mosley Brown, who was the first African-American woman ever elected to the Senate. Um, 23 women to the House. That was called the Year of the Woman, 1992. Then... The sexual har- the movement to sort of identify and fight back against sexual harassment as as a workplace norm um, was kind of derailed during the Clinton administration by Bill Clinton <laughs> because the news and the revelations that he had had this relationship with his intern Monica Lewinsky um, certainly qualified as an abuse of power um, as a sexual abuse of power but Democratic women and feminists were in an extremely tough position. They were reliant on this guy as the Democratic president, as the as the leader of the party that was on the side of their priorities. He was a pro-choice president after 12 years of Reagan and, and Bush. He appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. He signed the Family and Medical Leave Act. He was the closest thing that people had at that point to a, a president who was sort of on the side of feminist principles. And perhaps because of that, and perhaps because of some complexities around the way we thought about sexuality and autonomy, feminists wound up defending Bill Clinton. And it kind of took the wind out of the fight against sexual harassment, because there was this accusation that could be lobbed, like, oh, well, you only care about it when it happens to somebody who's not on your side. And I think it kind of slowed it down. Then in recent years, um, prior to the 2016 election, there had been sort of a bubbling over of anger about the pervasiveness and ubiquity of this kind of power abuse. So you saw it, for example, around a bunch of guys whose history of doing this was really open, right? Not secret, but no one had cared. In the years that it had been public, no one had cared enough to have it slow down or stop their careers or the millions of dollars they make. So there are a few examples of this. One is Roger Ailes, the head of the Fox News Network. It was very public that he had been rumored to have harassed women who worked for him at his network. It was also public on air. He very much used women's bodies and women's partially clothed bodies to sell the news in a very particular way. This was not a secret. And nobody had really cared. But in the summer of 2016, and I do think that this probably had to do with the fact that Donald Trump was the nominee, and even before the Access Hollywood tape was released, his treatment of women was so clear, Women began to tell stories of how Ailes had truly harassed them in, in horrific ways, and the public cared, and, and Ailes left Fox News. Bill O'Reilly, he had been sued for sexual harassment years before, and that case had been public. No one had really cared. But suddenly, the stories about Bill O'Reilly, people had kind of latched onto enough that he lost his job, and Bill Cosby is the other example, slightly different, because what he was accused of was not just sexual harassment, it was rape. Those stories had been public, reported in big places for decades. No one had cared. And then suddenly they did care. So the reality of sexual harassment goes back as long as you could look. Yes. But the spark 
of the Me Too movement that may it meant not that both that women spoke up and that women were believed. Mm-hmm. What what was the ignition for that? Well, I do think that the mass what we saw unfolding in beginning in the in October of 2017 with the um, reporting on Harvey Weinstein and the sort of mass movement that followed that. That I do believe. There had been these little eruptions that had gotten us here. And then the last one, of course, was the revelation about Donald Trump. And people were really angry about that. After the Access Hollywood tape, in which he was recorded saying that you can just grab women by the pussy and you can do anything when you're famous and it just doesn't matter. This was this was the voicing of harassment, right? This was the voicing of the power abuse, the admission of it, the proud admission of it. And there had been anger after that. There was a hashtag campaign. Women were screaming mad after that. And then he got elected president. And there was something about that dynamic, which is that, oh, we're so mad. Here we are. We finally, our anger about these guys has finally produced some results. Like they've stopped being paid their millions of dollars. Although, frankly, in many cases, they got to walk away with millions of dollars. But um, they've lost their jobs. And yet, this guy can still be elected president. And something about that, I think, combined with the many women who were politically just devastated by the election of Donald Trump, it was we were ready to combust. So when the reporting about Harvey Weinstein came out, and it was, of course, one of the most egregious cases, um, it was like a match was lit for like very dry tinder. And there was just this explosion. And that's the kind of thing. I mean, you see that in past social movements that there are people, the anger is building and then something happens and it gets lit up. So but with the with the Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas case back in 1991, Big firestorm. Mm-hmm. In a way, a can- you know, match was lit with that, with the conversations and the controversy that followed that. He still got on the Supreme Court where he continues mm-hmm. to sit. Donald Trump got elected president. He's still president. Mm-hmm. Is this different this time? Or is this going to happen again where it'll fade and then there'll be another match lit in 10 or 20 years? Well, so much of our history around all kinds of inequities winds up being repeated and circular. So... Um, I do think, uh, of course, this is different. We're changing things. We've, uh, I don't think that there is a comparable period like the one that existed between October 5th, which is the day that the Harvey Weinstein story was published, and, you know, January when it began to, to cool. Um, although, and then it still hasn't gone away. There's still incredible reporting and anger around sexual harassment every day at this point. It has not actually been been beaten back. But I don't remember a period of such sustained anger like that that lasted for four months and that was kind of unrelenting. Um, in, in my lifetime, the anger about Anita Hill was hot and burned very bright, but it wasn't that four-month stretch of dominating headlines and, in fact, resulting in repercussions for very powerful men. The censure of very powerful men, very powerful white men, we don't see that a lot. As you say, Donald Trump is still the president. You know, Bill O'Reilly was sued for sexual harassment. He still got to keep his multimillion-dollar-a-year job for years after that. So um, it's very rare to see these powerful guys, beloved men lose their jobs and lose their perches. And we saw that around beloved guys, Charlie Rose, um, Matt Lauer, Mario Batali, people lost their jobs. And we just we haven't seen anything like that. So is it different? Yes, this is very different. Does it mean that it's going to fix everything? No. (laughs) You know, one way in which I think it's different, too, from 
1991 and 1992 is the increasing power of women in a lot of these institutions. And you think about the U.S. Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991, all male. Can you imagine? And there's a direct through line to what happened in the fall of 2017, of course, because what happens is one of the people who is accused of sexual impropriety during the Me Too conflagration is Al Franken, who is a beloved Democratic senator. Was. Was a beloved Democratic senator. And at that point, and so I, I mentioned what had happened with Bill Clinton, which is that when you have the, one of the one of the things about having so much political power in the hands of white men is that we are dependent on them, right? This is a dynamic that is really key to understanding why it's so hard to have these fights. Because, you know, and when we think of dependency and power imbalance, right, so if men have economic power, sexual power, social power, political power, professional power, the people who have less power than they depend on them, right? As our boss, as our husbands, you know, many women depend on their husbands economically, in addition to depending on them emotionally, you know, um, they are our bosses, the guys who have the power to give us the big breaks. When they are the stars, they provide our paychecks, right? It's their stardom that provides the paychecks for the women who work for them. When they are in charge of our political parties, we depend on them ideologically to put our agendas through. So that was the issue that I was getting at with Bill Clinton. And Al Franken is a similar thing. We depended on him as a feminist senator. He's a good feminist senator. He's a terrific senator. He's politics. What? Was. Was. Uh, I loved Al Franken. But he's he was accused. One of the interesting things about sexual harassment is that the damage isn't simply to the harassed. It's not simply to the person who was groped or claims that she was groped or who was come on to or, or treated badly. The damage of this kind of behavior extends to other people in the offices. And what was happening in the Senate was impeding the work of many of his colleagues, especially his women colleagues who work on these issues, who were getting asked the same questions that feminists got asked around Clinton, which is, oh, so you work on sexual harassment legislation, but you're not going to condemn your guy when it's him. So if you're and unfortunately, most of the senators who are doing the work around sexual harassment or sexual assault in the military or on college campuses are the women senators. So you have these women colleagues in the Senate who are having a harder time doing their jobs because the media, their constituents, and their ideological opponents are saying to them, you don't really believe in this stuff that you're trying to push us on because you won't condemn your own colleague. And those women get mad. And at some point, Franken's female colleagues got tired of it and asked him to resign. Now, that could only have happened. That was an extremely risky thing to do for which they are still paying and will probably pay deep into the future. The first one to call for his resignation was Kirsten Gillibrand. She has since been written about as opportunistic, craven, just out for her own fame and fortune, because as we all know, the number one way to succeed in the world is to take down a very popular and beloved man. <laughs> that is the path to success for ladies. Um, and she's losing donors and people, Democrats are denouncing her for taking down Al Franken. But in fact, it was a dozen of his female colleagues who called on the same day for him to resign. They could not have done that had they not had the numbers. They would never have had the power to even be able to make that request. So that's different now than how it's how it's tremendous. Been You've never had a point where there were that many women in the Senate who could have banded together that way. So if Al Franken had a deaf ear about this, kind of surprisingly, since he's, yeah. um, uh, as you say, a popular guy, he's been a, a friend of feminists. Were you taken aback by the deaf ear that Bill Clinton had when he came out with? Yes. Uh, his, his, oh, his it was the worst. Patterson? Oh, that man made me so angry. I wrote a very angry column about that. 
Yes, but this is the thing. Men don't know. They do not, they have not paid one bit of attention to the degree that women are asked to answer for them and their crap behavior every day, and yet they are so rarely actually called on to answer for it themselves. Let me tell you who's paid a price for Bill Clinton's bad behavior and who has been asked about it relentlessly for the past 20 years. Every woman who's ever thought about Bill Clinton, okay, has been asked. Every, every woman. Oh, first of all, Monica Lewinsky has paid a price, had her life defined by this by this relationship. His wife, Hillary Clinton, who has been asked to answer for her own reactions, not just for his behavior, but for how she reacted to his behavior. So in addition to being asked to be his policewoman, then she is judged on whether she policed well enough or not, right? The feminists who defended him at the time have been asked how their defense, as and I, this is a critique I just offered, did damage to the, to the, movement to get sexual harassment taken more seriously. Anyone who supported Hillary Clinton in either 2008 or 2016 was asked to defend their support of Hillary Clinton, given her reaction to Bill's behavior. I mean, people who I was in college when Bill Clinton had a relationship with Monica Lewinsky. I was Monica Lewinsky. I am Monica Lewinsky's age. And I have been asked a hundred times to justify every feminist thought I've ever had regarding democratic politics, sexual harassment, Monica Lewinsky or Hillary Clinton. And Bill Clinton thought he could go sell a book. He could go out on a book tour and he somehow manages to get surprised that in this year of our Lord with Donald Trump as our president, somebody's going to ask him about Monica Lewinsky. Fuck that guy. So let's live in an alternate universe. Oh, and in this, in this universe, Hillary Clinton won in 2016, as almost everyone expected her to do. Yeah. Donald Trump is now the defeated Republican candidate out of politics forever. Does the Me Too movement happen? No. No. I think it happens. And that's and by the way, I, I don't think that's either good or bad. Right. I think it's I think it's an alternate universe. I think that I mean, and by the way, we're all making guesses here. I don't I I. I we don't actually we live don't, in the we alternate don't actually universe. live in the alternate universe. I think that the I think that we know leading up to the election that this again the Ailes Cosby um, O'Reilly stuff the 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 furor over Trump's comments the Access Hollywood tape showed us that there what this is obviously beneath the surface and people want to talk about it the degree to which. The Me Too movement, which I should also note, since we're talking about it, and it's crucial to note this, Me Too was a hashtag that was developed by Tarana Burke in reference specifically to sexual violence and working in her community, women of color, um, years before it was reappropriated in response to the stories about sexual harassment. And as it has been reappropriated with regard to sexual stories of sexual harassment, its meaning has been altered slightly to cover sexual harassment and, in fact, a whole bucket of other things. And at the Aspen Festival, I've spoken to Toronto Burke about both the pride she takes in in what has how it has exploded and the frustration she sometimes has felt that it's not always used in the way that she intended it, which was as a communicative um, device to be used specifically about sexual harm and 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 violence toward um toward women and girls. So I want to make that distinction when we're talking about the Me Too movement. I'm using it a little carelessly by Tarana Burke's standards, I think. And I want to just be be clear about that. But 
that the conflagration that created that, for example, four-month unrelenting conversation that was like destabilizing and uncomfortable, I think, for all of us, even the biggest proponents of Me Too, I don't think it happens at that intensity if Hillary Clinton is the president. And that is, as I said, it is both good and bad. I would rather live in the world where Hillary Clinton is the president and we don't have a travel ban and we don't have a zero tolerance immigration policy, though I'm sure our immigration laws would still be bad and they were bad under Obama too, um, in which a Supreme Court seat had not been stolen. You know, I want to live in that universe because there are people suffering, suffering economic, familial, physical harm in under the administration that we are now living in. So I prefer the alternate universe where Hillary Clinton is the president. That said, I, ha I have just written this book about the power of anger as a social, as a disruptive agent. The anger, and, and we've been living in a, in a world in which a lot of the anger that had been expressed had been quelled and blanketed and said, no, that's marginalizing and hysterical and overdramatic and theatric. And this is a world where we just, we've had a black president and the, and, you know, a woman is the inevitable next president. There's nothing to be angry about. Come on, you know, there's, your anger is invalid here and you're borrowing from earlier eras. You know that everything's fixed. And that certainly that, that fantasy, which is a tool that has been used, that is used to suppress the disruptive power of anger, right? And women's anger would have been in full effect. We would have a woman president. The idea that women would have a lot to be angry about, about how they're treated badly in the workplace, would be completely bandaged over by the fact that the president would be woman. And not to mention a woman who's married to a man whose history of sexual power abuses makes her own feminism suspect in the eyes of lots of people. So, no, I don't think the conflagration would have happened with the intensity. I do think it was building up. It probably, there certainly would have been this critique about Bill. We would have had the conversation about Bill. That conversation was long overdue. The The way that it, people tried to have it when Hillary Clinton was the candidate was another way to try to make her pay for his behavior. Your, your new book talks about the the power of women's anger is that political force. And one way we see that is the record number of women who are running for governor and for the Senate and for the House, the House. and for school superintendent and for every job uh, in America uh, in a way that just dwarfs what happened in 1992, yes. which we previously called the Year of the Woman. And I wonder if you think that's that this will be in November a, a kind of transformational election or or. Is that just, is everything too incremental for that? Is this just going to be one more no. small step in one direction or the other? It so depends on what happens in November. There, it, there is this unprecedented number of women running, an unprecedented number of women winning their primaries, which is shocking. There is such an appetite, at least on the left and among Democrats, which is what we, where we've seen it because it's so far it's been primary elections. Although that's not true in the Virginia special elections, we've seen it too. In Georgia special elections, we have seen New Jersey special elections, we have seen women win against Republicans, too. But we haven't seen it on the kind of mass midterm scale yet. So and we don't know what's going to happen in November. A lot of these women are winning their primaries in contested districts where there are Republican incumbents, where it's going to be the very hardest kind of race to win. So it could be that a huge number of them. I mean, the thing about having a record number of women candidates is that you're going to have a record record number of women losing, but also, yes, potentially a record number of women winning. And if depending on whether there's a wave, a blue wave, and then the size and scope of that wave, 
it has the potential. I'm in no way, I do not do predictions. I am saying that one potential outcome could be what is actually a transformational moment. If you, if we really started to elect women in the kind of numbers that we're seeing run, it wouldn't, we wouldn't get to 50-50. <laughs> That's a joke. Why would we think that we would do that in a purportedly representational democracy? Um, but we could increase the percentage of women in our governing bodies by a bit with a big jump, right? And that would be transformational. That changes. We, it is truly, we don't like to talk about this, the fact that this country <laughs> operates along the idea of minority rule, which is that we have a population minority, white men, who since our founding have had the disproportionate share of political, economic, social, and sexual power, right? It is minority rule. And uh, so chipping away at that is a huge deal when it happens. We are in a period of tremendous civic education for for women who haven't been that engaged with politics until now, when they felt that suddenly it was an emergency and kind of awoke and suddenly learned everything they want, everything there was to know about their local city councils and, you know, how to how to run elections. And they're bringing their skills from other parts of the world to political organizing and canvassing. They're working in groups, online groups. You know, women are being are politically active and getting an education in what the issues are every time that there is a and there have been fights about immigration policy, about health care policy. It was often women who were staging a lot of those demonstrations who were doing 86 percent of the people who were calling and writing their their Congress people during the health care fights were women, many of them middle aged women, older women. Um, who had not previously been engaged in politics. I believe a third of the people who went to the Women's March had never been to a protest before. Um, you're seeing a rush of people into political engagement that we also can't account for. And I don't want to be over-optimistic about it. I don't know what the result is going to be. I'm not... Pro the in fact, what has to happen if those who are invested in it want to see that level of a wave is they have to stay angry and they have to stay engaged through the midterms and then well beyond the midterms. Because one of the problems we have in this country is that we gear ourselves up for elections. Thank God at least we're talking about the midterms now and not just the presidential election. Because one of the things we do in this country is we tell ourselves we just have to elect a president and that that president can fix everything all by themselves. And there is nothing that the past decade has taught us except that is a myth and a lie that we need to get over. And the population that has just become engaged must stay engaged. And my argument is that part of that is about staying angry about all the inequities that have become clear to people who weren't looking straight at them before. Rebecca Traster, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Rebecca Traster writes for New York Magazine and is the author of the book, All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. I'm Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks for listening.